25 years ago, a 29-year-old, wet behind the ears, pastor stepped into the pulpit of this church to deliver his first sermon as the pastor of the church. He was excited, he was nervous, and he mostly wanted to get the whole thing off on the right foot. I know what he felt like because that guy was me. Uh, and it's, I can't help but blink a little bit on a morning like this uh, to what it was like back then. And so much has changed, but so much has stayed the same, which is, in a way, my theme this morning as I talk with you today about that first sermon you know, there are hundreds of thousands of pastors around the world. All of them had that first sermon, and all of them had an opportunity to sort of set the tone and to set the direction of their ministry. And I thought about, like, what do I want to do, and what, I, what should I talk about? And I decided to do a message on the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. And I entitled the message, It's All About Him. It was from Revelation 5, and it seemed like it was warmly received. Of course, pastors uh, talk about the first year at a church. They call it the pastoral honeymoon uh, because everybody's on their best behavior, you know, for the new guy, and uh, it's, it's, it's a very wonderful season in pastoral ministry. As a side note, many of you still treat me like we're on a pastoral honeymoon, and I want to thank you for your kindness over all these years. So after my, uh, my first year, after the honeymoon was over that first year, I had a chance uh, to speak again. And I decided, you know, on the anniversary, I think I'm going to speak on the same thing again. It's all about him, different text. And then the third year, guess what? I, was, I think I need to speak on this again. And so we just made it a kind of an annual thing. And, it, you know, all about him six, all about him nine, all about him, I forget when. Somewhere between 10 and 15, we dropped the numbers because it was confusing, uh, especially the Roman numerals. And we just called it All About Him Sunday. All About Him Sunday. And we have been doing these now for a quarter century. Think of that. It's hard to believe. A quarter century of doing our best to make Bethel Church all about him. Now, if you're newer here, uh, and maybe you're wondering, what is this church all about? You've picked the perfect Sunday to come. Because if there is anything that really is the North Star of our church, it is this central theme, it's all about him. And, uh, and that's what we're doing, at least we're trying to do. Hang around here, you'll see a lot of imperfection in that, but that's what we're trying to do. And you know, looking back at my first sermon, I wouldn't change it. Like, even after all these years, I don't look back and go, ah, I should have done something else. I think it was the right one. And a thousand years from now, Lord willing, if our church is still around, I hope and pray that it's still all about him, because that truth is always relevant for sinners. And I see a few of them here today. Indeed, we are, what is a church? It's a conference of sinners. It's a gathering of sinners. That's who we are. And sinners always need a savior. And that person is Jesus Christ. Our text today is 2 Corinthians chapter four. If 
you want to turn there, you can. I'll have the text up for you on the screen. But 2 Corinthians 4, little, uh, little background here. In the New Testament, there are two letters to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In the first letter to the Corinthians, uh, we, we could appropriately call the church at Corinth the crazy church of the New Testament. I mean, Paul says a few nice things at the beginning, but the rest of the letter is basically an apostolic, uh, scathing review of everything that they have messed up, and they messed up tons. They, for example, were too worldly. They loved celebrity preachers. They messed up the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, marriage, sex, and a whole bunch of other categories. They were indeed the crazy church at Corinth. Then you get to 2 Corinthians, and the tone is totally different. The letter is very affirming of them, and we sort of get the sense that if there was a most improved church award handed out, probably it would have been the Corinthians who would have gotten it. As a side note, did you know that churches can grow and improve? And we see that certainly with the Corinthians. They're horrible in 1 Corinthians, and they're not so bad in 2 Corinthians. That gives all, our, all, all us churches hope that we indeed are on a, a path of improvement and growth. So I'm gonna read the uh, larger section here, but the verse we're focusing on is 2 Corinthians 4, verse five, which is this. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay, that's our primary text. Let me read the bigger section here. So we're starting at the end of chapter three, Here's what it says. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory, I'm sorry, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, here's the key verse, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. May God bless his word this morning. Such a doctrinally rich section of scripture there, focusing on the glory of Jesus Christ and the glory of the gospel through him. And if, if just a quick summary to walk through, we saw at the, at the end of chapter three, Paul says, to be a Christian is to have a sight of Jesus. Now, we don't see him physically, but we by faith see him through the gospel and through the scriptures, and we behold him, and that vision of Jesus is transformational, that we are by the Spirit being changed from who we are to the glory of who he is. And this ought to encourage us. We don't lose heart, verse one. 
And we also don't have to be devious or sneaky about anything. We just simply hold forth who Jesus is. Does that mean everyone's going to believe it and everyone's going to see him as Lord and Savior? No. There is a veil, he says. There is a veil over the eyes, or really the heart, of the unbeliever. They can't see this glory of Jesus. They think we're nut jobs for what we believe and gathering here today and the things that we celebrate because they can't see the glory of Jesus. They can't see him in his true nature. By the grace of God, we can. I remember some years ago, Jennifer and I, we had uh, a couple of nights that we enjoyed on the 84th floor of a skyscraper in downtown Chicago. And that's quite a view, I might add. And uh, one day, I think it was in the morning, here comes this fog into Chicago. I know it's surprising. But here comes this fog into Chicago, and it was a thick fog, a super thick fog. But we were on the 84th floor. We were looking down on the, on the fog, and there were just a couple of buildings in Chicago tall enough to, to be above the fog. So there we were looking at the fog, but the, sun, the sky was blue and the sun was shining. We could see everything. They couldn't see anything. And the text here says that our world is in a spiritual fog. They can't see the glory of Christ. But to be a Christian is to hang out on the 84th floor and to enjoy a view of the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so a true Christian and a true gospel church, Christian church, is a, is a gathering of people who on the 84th floor all together see Jesus for who he is. We see him by faith for sure, and we see him through the scriptures for sure. I have never beheld Jesus physically, but the eyes of my heart and the faith of my heart sees him for who he is, and indeed he is glorious. In fact, what we see when we look at Jesus of Nazareth, we see an exceptional life. And not just an exceptional life, we see a supernatural life. We see something so much different and unique. It is something better, greater than any teacher, leader, religious uh, uh, figure in all of human history. There is something about Jesus that is different, better, and greater than anyone else. We perceive glory. We perceive his divine nature in and through the gospel. As the apostle John wrote in John 1, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And every Christian would see that and say, amen. Now John saw the transfiguration and John saw the resurrected Christ. We have never seen that, but we see it through the scriptures and we see him through the eyes of faith. So underlying this text is a treasuring of Jesus. There is a, an estimation of his value and a perception of his glory that causes us to hold him in our hearts as truly our greatest treasure is knowing and having Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay? Now I'm gonna call a quick timeout. Timeout. Very quick little pastoral tangent. Now, in your heart, you're thinking, these are never short. This one will be short, okay? Because, and I, and I want to say this, uh, because if you just came today, you might 
say to yourself, I'm a little confused because I understand that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet you're talking about, it's all about him, Jesus. And you would rightly note, because there is an ancient heresy known as modalism, and there are still churches today, even in our community, that practice modalism, and modalism says that it, it collapses the Trinity really into just one singular being that kind of expresses or looks like a father, son, and spirit. It diminishes the distinct personalities and uh, is considered a, a heresy. Do we be, believe that? No, we do not. The father, the son, and the spirit, they are co-equal. They are co-eternal. They share the same nature. They are distinct personalities within the one triune God, we rightly worship God the Father and pray to God the Father and we worship God the Spirit and we pray to God the Spirit and to God the Son. They all deserve our worship. Yet Jesus, as the Son of God, holds a unique relationship to the church and to Christians because he is our Savior. The Father did not die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross the spirit was not resurrected from the grave. Jesus was resurrected from the grave. We are, we are not the bride of God. We are the bride of Christ. So the purpose then of the church is to join in with the Father and the Spirit to unveil the glory of who the second person of the Trinity is, Jesus Christ. We're on board with what they're doing, and as we saw in the reading in Colossians 1 earlier, all of these things that Jesus is and Jesus does and that God has done and redemption and salvation and human history, it is all for the purpose of unveiling the glory of Jesus. And the church is on board with that, and that's why we say it's all about him. Now, if you're clapping already, I haven't even got into the verse yet. This is going to be awesome today. So let's get into the verse, okay? Focus is verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And what I'm putting forth today is that that verse summarizes the culture of a church that is all about him. What does it look like? It looks like this. And I hold as our prime directive as a congregation that we are to make much of Jesus. Now, look at the verse. It, it begins by, the first clause is, what we don't do, okay? We don't proclaim ourselves. The second clause is what we do do, declare Jesus as Lord. And the third, if we have to talk about ourselves, here's how we view ourselves, servants for Jesus' sake. Okay, so there's the breakdown of the verse. Let's walk through it together. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. I put up here passion. What is our passion? And I say that because you know, we, uh, we talk about whatever is in our heart that, that we're excited about, that we're really about. As Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay, so if, if you get around a Mary Kay salesperson, <laughs> guess what you're going to hear about? 
if you get around a Norwexy type person, guess what you're going to hear about? You, you, uh, you get around a NASCAR, Cubs, Birds, grandchildren type person, guess what you're going to hear about? We talk about whatever in our heart is actually the passion of our life. Now for ourselves, our natural pa- passion is us. We are, the natural us is nothing excites us more than, than us. Okay? Yet he says here, we don't proclaim ourselves. We don't preach ourselves. We're not about ourselves. And what Paul is doing here is he is confronting a problem that we know that happened in the church at Corinth. The city of Corinth, very significant city. It was a city of trade. It was a rich city. It was an immoral city. Uh, It was a big city of the day. And we know that Paul started the, the church, and after he left, there were itinerant preachers and teachers who would come to Corinth and come to the church at Corinth, and they uh, would take advantage of the congregation. These teachers proclaimed themselves. Here's a few chapters later, Paul says this to the Corinthians. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourself. This is sort of apostolic snarkiness, okay? Being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or or strikes you in the face. What he's saying here is he's, he's criticizing the church for allowing these itinerant teachers and preachers to come into their assembly and to lead them astray. How did they do that? They preached themselves. They promoted themselves. They puffed themselves. And the Corinthian church, sitting there listening, they bought into it hook, line, and sinker. Friends, an all-about-him church won't tolerate self-promoting teaching or teachers. Not in the pulpit. And by the way, not in the other, you know, back in the day, you know, this was the gathering, this was the only teaching Christians got was when they gathered on a Sunday. These days, so many of us are listening to teaching podcasts and YouTube and all kinds of different teachings all throughout the week. It requires even greater discernment than it did back in this day. And an all about crim Christian, listen now, is listening with a discerning ear is this person teaching in a way to draw me to them or to draw me to him? And there is a significant difference in these two. I wonder if, if you can tell the difference. The Corinthian church, pastored by the Apostle Paul, they fell for it. Can you tell the difference between the two? Let me give you a couple tips on how to discern uh, what is being taught. Here's a good one. Who's the hero of the teaching? Who's the hero when it's all done? Is it the teacher and his teachings? Or is it our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Who looks good in the message? If the speaker tells stories, are the stories all about how good he is? Things that he's done? 
If he tells stories that make himself look good, you might have a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. If the speaker adulates, by the way, the stories like that don't apply to his daughters, just to be clear. <laughs> you get a pass with respect to the daughters. If the speaker adulates his own ministry, his own numbers, his own impact, beware a wolf in sheep's clothing. If the speaker asks for money, or it seems like the end goal of the whole thing is financial support, beware a wolf in sheep's clothing. And you might say to yourself, oh, I would never fall for that. These Corinthians had way better teaching. They had the Apostle Paul, okay? And yet, they still fell for this sort of, of thing. Let me illustrate it this way. This is kind of a legendary story. I believe it to be true. But there was an American, this is 100 plus years ago, there was an American who uh, traveled to London to hear the two great British preachers of the day. One was a guy whose name doesn't matter, and the other was a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And so he went two Sundays, went to both churches, came back to America. His friend said to him when he came back, hey, what was it like? Tell me about, about the two preachers. He said, when I left the one guy's church, I thought to myself, what a great preacher. And when I left Spurgeon's church, I thought, what a great savior. Can you tell the difference? I remember Joe Stoll years ago gave some wise advice to pastors. He said, and I share this, you'll, you'll pick, hopefully pick this up when I do this in the future. He said, hey, be careful when you tell stories that make you look too good, okay? Because your wife knows you're not always that good. <laughs> and he says, in fact, best is to say that. You say, you know, I, I wish I was always this good, or I wish I always got it right like this. And that way you avoid promoting yourself to the to the congregation, don't make yourself too high. No, we don't preach ourselves. What you think of me when this is all done doesn't matter diddly squat. Because I can't save you. There's nothing about me or whoever might be up here that contributes at all to your actual redemption. This is about God. It is about uh, uh, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is, about, this is about him. And the tone and the discerning ear of an all about him church, that's what they want. And they don't tolerate anything but that. And that's what we're trying to do here, not to promote ourselves. And this is a hard thing, by the way, because we want you to like the church. We want you to be a part of things. We encourage you to come and, and, you know, and we got a logo and a website and, you know, we got all these things, but they are means to a different end. Our church is not the goal. Bethel Church can come, Bethel Church can go. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you end up in eternity with him. Okay? And your kids know Jesus Christ as their Savior. <laughs> and your kids end up in heaven with him and you. Okay? And on we could go. The church is a means to a greater end. We join with the Father. We join with the Spirit in 
in unveiling the glory of the Son. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. It is all about him. And that's what our passion has to be, not us. Okay? And that's the next, the next clause. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And here we have the earliest Christian creed of all. Like before Nicene, before even the Apostles' Creed, there was this very short, succinct statement that the early church held to as the most basic statement of authentic Christianity. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that word Lord had profound implications in a society that was wholly dedicated not to Christ as Lord, but Caesar as Lord. The worship of the leader of Rome, the great mighty Roman Empire. This is why Rome hated Christianity until the third century. Persecuted, killed, murdered Christians like, like crazy. They hated the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord. And by the way, the political power of that lives on to this day. You could argue that the Chinese communist government is more afraid of Christianity than they are the US military. They hate Christianity, and yet it's exploding in China, praise God, okay? Praise God. That's the power of that statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, filled with political implications. To think about in the Roman Colosseum, to this day there's a giant, giant steel cross in the Roman Colosseum as a silent testimony to all of our brothers and sisters, thousands of them, who were taken to that Colosseum, if they would have said, I affirm Caesar is Lord, they would have said, have a nice day, and on they go with their lives. But thousands of them refused to do that. They said, no, Jesus Christ is Lord, and they were fed to the lions as entertainment for a godless Roman empire. We look at that and it's like, really? I mean, come on, just, can't you just kind of, you know, okay, Caesar's Lord. Na, 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 na. And go on with your life? Really? You're gonna, you're gonna die holding to that one four-word sentence? Jesus Christ is Lord is worth your life? You're crazy. And yet their allegiance was to him and to him alone. Caesar or Christ, which would it be for you? And I say this, it's a good reminder to us because political idolatry has invaded many a church these days and become the rally cry. Caesar, Caesar, no, not Caesar, Christ is Lord. What is it here? Caesar or Christ, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man? And all about him, church, holds its passion as the glory of Jesus Christ as Lord over all. Here's some other verses that speak to this. 1 Corinthians 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the Apostle Paul. What would it have been like to have the Apostle Paul as your pastor every Sunday? Another message on Jesus and him crucified. 
It's all, I, it's all I said. It's all I talked about. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Philippians 2, such a powerful passage. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That last verse there, describing a future moment when every single created being, it says angels and demons, humans, every single uh, being will gather together in a kind of massive billions upon billions throne with, with Jesus at the center. And collectively, all will bow to him and will profess, Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ, is Lord. And friend, you're going to be there. You say, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what your future holds, but I'll tell you what in time, you're going you're gonna to bow before Jesus Christ. The demons are going to bow. Satan is going to bow. Unbelievers who right now think we're the nut jobs are going to bow before Jesus and will profess accurate Christian theology. Jesus Christ is Lord. There he is, Jesus. Lord of all. We don't, we don't make him Lord. We don't enhance his lordship. He is Lord, he is at the right hand of the Father. He ascended to there, having died for sins and resurrected, conquering death. He is going to return, as the creed says. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. He is the ultimate and final judge of all. He is there in the highest place with the highest authority. He is therefore called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so what, it, what this verse is saying, therefore, is to be a part of a local church is essentially a prequel to that experience. The culture of the church is like what that is going to be, only in a kind of back-to-the-future sort of way, <laughs> brings that future moment of declaration of who Jesus is into the present and the now, and we say the same thing that we're going to say someday then. He is Lord, he is highest, he is glorious, he is all. He is the hero of our story. He ought to be the hero of the sermons. He is the hero and savior of our lives. We don't proclaim us, we proclaim him. It's all about him. Now you might be saying to yourself, I came to this church to get a little something about me here. I'm needing a little encouragement here today. I'm just talking about Jesus. What about me? Well, this verse describes our role in all of this. Notice what it says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So what is our role? The ESV translates it servants. The actual Greek word is more demeaning than that. You could translate it bond slave. Bond slave. The lowest rung of society in that day 
was not merely to be a servant in some master's uh, estate, but to be a slave, to be a bond slave, the bottom rung. Paul embraces this title in the introduction of his great letter to the Romans. Here's what he says. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. What? Paul, you're an apostle. Why not say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I write to you, Romans. Come on, Paul. Don't sell yourself short here now. We all know who you are. Apostle. Author of scripture. I mean, why not say, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit as I write this letter to you. He doesn't do that. Did you know that Jesus appeared to Paul uh, Paul personally in multiple occasions? Why not put that in there? Paul, who Jesus deemed important enough to appear to personally many times, writes now to you, Romans. I mean, think about the resume uh, sort of job hunters, what they would encourage, what, what they would do with Paul's resume. I mean, he would sound amazing. And yet Paul, in his own estimation, bond slave, Slave to Jesus. When Paul looked in the mirror, he didn't see a great theologian. He didn't see a great leader. He saw a slave to Jesus. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Who are you in your own estimation? Do you look in the mirror and be like, I see greatness, potential, awesomeness. What do you see? Do you realize that there is a direct correlation between how high we see Jesus and how low we see ourselves? Let me illustrate it this way. Please put the picture up. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this playground equipment. And, uh, you know, how many of you called this a teeter-totter growing up? Teeter-totter, okay. Seesaw, any seesaw folks? Okay, kind of seesaw. I have no idea the etymology of this and why there was, uh, there's two names for this, but I actually looked it up. I Googled it. There is a Wikipedia entry about teeter-totters. And it describes it this way. A teeter-totter is a long board with a pivot point halfway. Now, no kid would describe it that way. They just would say, it's super fun, right? It's super fun. Although, I'm spending time at parks these days, and to my eye, there are a lot less teeter-totters around than there used to be. And I think I kind of understand why because of all the spinal cord injuries and back adjustments that happen, if you're familiar with what happens when the person who is, on, uh, is, is low decides suddenly to go do something, right? And down goes the other person. It can be a very painful, I'm sure many of you had that happen to you. Let's talk about teeter-totters though for a moment. Concept is simple. When one goes up, the other goes down. You got that? And then this one goes down, and the other 
goes up and you seesaw, you teeter-totter, up and down you go. In fact, we could say this, for one to go down, the other has to go up. Or to even say this, the higher the one goes, the lower the other. And that's the point that I'm getting at here. Can I say it again? The higher the one goes, the lower goes the other. Paul, slave of Jesus. How did Paul come to look in the mirror and see himself, not as the world sees him, but to see himself as a slave? I mean, think about the self-esteem psychologists today and what they would say to Paul about this. Paul, do you realize who you are? Like, for the next 2,000 years, churches will name themselves St. Paul. Cities are going to be named St. Paul. Paul, your name will be one of the most popular boy names for two millennia. Paul, you should have a high view of yourself, not a low view of yourself. And yet Paul says, I, Paul, slave of Jesus. Where did this come from? In Paul's internal teeter-totter, he saw Jesus as so high and glorious that he very gladly took the lowest place. In his own estimation, when compared to Jesus, he was at best a slave and friends, today, the same thing is true. The higher in, the, in our hearts that we esteem, that we see Jesus to be, the more glorious we realize that he is as Lord, Savior, and God. The higher he goes, the more willing we are to take the low place. The more willing we are to sacrifice for him and to serve him. Why did those Roman Christians give their lives to the lions? Were they crazy? No. They had it exactly right. Knowing Jesus is better than my life itself. That's how high they had Jesus. And therefore they gave themselves. Why did the apostles, save John, all give their lives as martyrs for Jesus? Why did they sacrifice so much? It's because we see in the writings of Paul his heart and his estimation of Jesus Christ and he saw him so high he gladly became low. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And on and on we could go. The higher we see him, the lower we see ourselves. And by the way, this is not in a bad way. This is in the healthy way. This is in the good way that diminishes our pride and diminishes our self-obsession and our self-worship. In the words of John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. And that is what we're trying to do here at Bethel Church. We are trying to teeter him so high 
that we totter ourselves so low that all the ministries in one way or another are lifting high Jesus Christ and teaching and making much of him. This is the purpose of the ministries within our church, to make much of him. This is the purpose of our ministries globally, to spread the glory of Jesus and his name to all the earth. This is why our efforts for the poor and the bless the community, we're doing it for Jesus' sake. Here's our mission statement. Bethel Church exists to multiply disciples. Or I'm saying that wrong. To make disciples whose lives are all about him. He must increase. We must decrease. And we've been doing this now for quite a long time. And we have done it well in some ways, and we've done it poor in ways. We do this imperfectly. I have failed many times in my leadership here at the church towards this goal. And yet, can we reaffirm today our commitment to this basic, fundamental purpose and goal that we are here not to preach or puff ourselves. We are here to declare and to preach Jesus Christ as Lord and to place ourselves in a position as merely servants for Jesus' sake. Amen? Amen. That's why we're here. This is the goal and the purpose. Now, I dug up the old sermon this week. 25 years ago sermon, and I was looking at it, and I read the last, this is the ending of my sermon, the very first All About Him sermon, and I make it my ending here today. It is my desire that Bethel be known as a place of redundancy. It's Jesus in the children's ministries, it's Jesus in the deacons' meetings, it's Jesus in the seniors and in the junior high, Jesus in the offices, Jesus on Sunday, and Jesus all week long. And from this pulpit, I shall endeavor to preach of him and his word as long as God gives me breath, so that they may call us Bethel, but all they hear is Jesus, for in reality, this whole thing is all about him. Couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> and that is the point today. Indeed, it is all about him.